I guess we should do the first segment on the M1 stuff, get it out of the way, and then blow the rest of our time on the phones. Yeah. Hey, that sounds about right. <laughs> uh, I, so with the Verge, you guys got all three. You, you took the Pro. Dieter took the MacBook Air. And Dan Seifert took the, the Mac Mini. Chris, Is that right? Chris Welch Chris, took the Mac Chris Mini. Chris Welch took it. All right. I knew I, I blew it on the third one. All right. <laughs> but uh, you guys did get all three. I, I had the MacBook Pro. I still have it. I'm still amazed by it. Um, and I kind of feel like the this was a case where did you see the review that Patrick Moorhead uh, quote unquote review that he he put on Forbes? It's like part of the Forbes contributor network. It was like the uh, the last honest man's review of the M1. <laughs> yeah, I mean I, Pat and I have been talking back and forth a little bit about it. Yeah. Uh, and I noticed that uh, since when he, he published it, and I think it took off in a way that maybe he even he wasn't expecting. It it got a I, lot of uptake. I think that's very true that he was not expecting the reaction it got, and he it, it toned it down a bit in in, in post. <laughs> <laughs> there, there were quite a few references in the original version to Apple Apple chosen reviewers. You know, that let me, you know, let me give you my take on this as opposed to the initial reviews from Apple's chosen reviewers. And, you know, you don't have to, and it was almost like he needed an editor because he mentioned Apple chosen reviewers too many times. But I did notice that in the uptake, that was what caught on, right? It was sort of like, there are people, and I don't blame them, right? It, it's like cynicism and uh, being jaded pays off probably more now than ever in our media yeah. world. And I think people thought, wait, these initial reviews sound too good to be true. And then Patrick Moorhead's review comes out and says, they're too good to be true. Here's the truth. And the, well, then wait, why were all the reviewers so glowing? And it's because Apple picked people who would either uh, he never you know and it was definitely made where he never insinuated why apple's chosen reviewers <laughs> would would write overwhelmingly positive reviewers reviews but it played into people's just gut level suspicion that hey something's wrong with these reviews because they're saying things that don't add up yeah i mean this for me is as a former gadget blogger is about as full circle as it gets right i would when I was making $14 a post at Engadget, why did Ed Big and <laughs> Walt Mossberg get the iPhone? It's because Apple has made some deal. And it's like, now I know Walt and I'm the guy who gets accused of, okay, well, you know, like you, you, this is just the circle of life continues. But, I, you know, I did, uh, Pat and I talked, we DM'd a little bit. Um, uh, I think he he tweeted that, you know, one thing that is really true about OS ten or Mac, Mac OS uh, they call it now. Um, that first day of a new Mac OS machine is shot for testing. Yeah, that that system just wants to index. It is. It comes into the world, and the first thing it wants to do is index itself as hardcore as it can. And so, I, just for years, I mean, and probably they've told you this too, but I get a new Mac machine from Apple, and I'm like, my benchmarks are slow, and they're like, has it been a full day yet? And I'm like, no, and they're like, wait, and like. Then the next year, a new one comes out, and I forget. So I think that played a pretty significant role in the results he was getting. And then the other, and I, you know, this is every computer is different. Everyone's workloads are different. It is a processor transition. 
There's a bunch of weird Big Sur stuff that's going on uh, with compatibility. And then on top of that, and, you know, just I'll say it as directly as I can. Like, I don't use a bunch of Microsoft apps. I don't use a bunch of weird enterprise collaboration tools. Uh, The Vox Media is still a startup. We run on Google Apps and Zoom, and we tested what we tested. And I will, you know, Dieter and I are, like, motivated to break the thing, right? Like, we want to push it to its limit and tell you this is where we found the limit, and we were sort of unable to do that inside of our workflows. I think if I worked at a Fortune 500 company that ran on weird old custom Windows software, I probably would have broken it in a different way. So I, I did appreciate the shift in perspectives, but in talking to Pat, I, I mean, he, he can speak for himself, but I definitely got the sense that he was not expecting the uptake that he got. No. Well, I I looked back at it and... I, I know what you're talking about that that one day and it for me it's usually spotlight and the, the photos stuff and because yeah. I I have all of my photos in the, the iCloud photos library so I don't know it's like up to thirty seven thousand photos and videos and even when you run migration assistant there's some of the indexing of that stuff doesn't come over by choice uh, you know spotlight doesn't come over I guess I don't know why I think the photos stuff doesn't uh, f- perhaps it's for some sort of privacy reason. Perhaps you know, you know, they've talked about you know that they don't store some of the facial you know recognition stuff uh, in the cloud, or at least it's not supposedly in a way that they can get it. But it anyway, Photos D or whatever it's called, something with a D runs in the background, takes a lot of CPU. I found it with this machine for the first time, it never made it hot, never slowed it down, and I was still getting uh, incredible benchmarks. It was like, and I could see an activity monitor that this stuff was happening that usually wrecks a machine until it's not, you can look in activity monitor, and when you're not doing anything, the machine's not doing anything, okay, now's the time to start running benchmarks. And I didn't even see that. Again, I'm not yeah, accusing I, them of dishonesty. I just, it just doesn't add up to what I saw, what, what other reviewers saw. And I think where he really had to, you know, tone it down a little bit was it didn't jibe with what just real people who now are getting them are seeing. Yeah. I mean, before we published our reviews, I texted Joanna and I was like, we're real close to giving the air a 10. Are we way out over our skis here? And she was like, no, I don't think so. That That's remarkable. You know, and we're not, again, we're, we're motivated to find the limits. Cause I think right. for me as a reviewer, one thing that we do is we tell you if it's worth the money. And one of the clearest ways to explain whether or not something is worth the money is to say, here's where your money will stop. Here's what you cannot do. And with the air, we could, you know, we could find the line. Certainly we could see it throttle at certain moments, but that line is so far above where any other consumer laptop at that price point is. It just made total sense to say this is great. I think now that people have, you you can't hide from the truth, right? Like people have the machines, they're going to run applications that aren't going to work. And Apple's claims are everything works. So there is a little bit of daylight there between what I think the most common experience is, what Apple is saying, and then what someone's absolutely bizarre edge case is going to be. And the question is just how much daylight is there? Right. And it's like, that was part of Moorhead's review. It was like, he, he listed some of the apps he was running and I'd never even heard of them. <laughs> and yeah. It was like a bunch of Microsoft stuff, but like some of the stuff he said too, just didn't add up to me. Like I ran all of my benchmarks with Chrome with the Intel compiled version of Chrome uh, because the, I think that their first 
I don't even know if it was still a beta, but they didn't have a, a native Apple Silicon version until like the night before reviews came out or something like that. But I thought it was interesting. I thought it was an interesting test of Rosetta. I was like, well, you know, Chrome is super popular. Uh, people use it for all sorts of things. So it's a great, this is a great app to test. Um, and it ran great. It, you know, it wasn't as fast as Safari and it, but it was definitely as fast as Chrome is on Intel brand new from this year, Intel MacBook pros. Uh, and yeah, it like ran that, all my tests in Chrome. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's Chrome is what I use. I, I think there's like an element of being a reviewer where you can't just do what they tell you to do. You're like, no, this is my laptop. I'm going to use it like my laptop. And I my you know, I run my workday in Chrome. And so I was really motivated to push Chrome because Chrome is a dog, even on the fastest Macs that have Intel chips. And here it was fine. I think a hair slower. And then the, I think the, the M1 build that they released, the Apple Silicon build they, in a bizarre way. Yeah. Um, is definitely faster, but it's definitely still slower than Safari. Yeah, and uh, like Slack, Slack came out with a beta that's Apple Silicon native. And again, I guess perhaps that's, I don't even know, I haven't followed that if that's what all of Electron is doing. But, but the way that Electron is this native, quote-unquote native app framework based on the Chromium engine, and that Chrome for now is going to ship Intel and... Apple Silicon versions as opposed to universe, a universal download that runs natively everywhere, I guess because it's so big and so much of it is compiled code and, and they're worried about the footprint. But uh, I upgraded to Slack's native beta early and it was fine. But I, I had been running the Slack Intel version for days on the machine too and it was fine. And whatever, you know, I have lots of complaints about Slack as a Mac app. But it's not slow. It's never really slow. It's yeah. just bloated and uses weird UI conventions, really weird UI conventions. And it uses a lot of memory because it's based on Chrome. Um, and I, so I, the Moorhead's review actually got me to uninstall the native beta I'd been using, go back to the Intel one. And I was like, no, this is fine. This is, I don't know what you're talking about. I mean, maybe your Slack is different. I don't know, but, uh, the Slacks I'm on, it was, this is amazing. Uh, basically, I feel like we, we've thought for years and there is, there still is. It's not like the M1 defies physics, but we know that there's a trade off between how fast a computer runs. And you can just say computer. You don't even have to get into CPU, GPU, machine learning, et cetera. Just the faster it runs, the more energy it uses. The more energy it uses, the hotter it gets, and you run into heat problems. And so you can have cool computers, basically, this is what we've accepted. You can have cool computers that are too slow for the sort of software people use on a daily basis. Or you can have fast computers that run hot and have loud fans. And the M1 is saying, well, actually, you can have your cake and eat it, too. Here's a computer that is actually very fast, and its single core competes with world-class desktop workstations, even though it's shipping in <laughs> $699 Mac minis and $999 MacBook Airs. It literally competes head-to-head -head on single core performance with multi-$10,000 workstations, and it runs... Uh, Cool as cool as a cucumber. And yeah, that uh, that seems too good to be true. It, it 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 is a it is a inflection point in the industry. There is no oh. there is no other chip. 
And it's not about ARM versus x86 instructions. There are ARM laptops. There are uh, multiple, you know, AMD and Intel laptops, but there is no other machines that that's true for. Yeah, I think that's true. I, you know, I wonder over time we're going to we're we're going to see this is one of those questions you don't, you're never going to be able to answer until you see the performance curve of the chips over time. But there was a huge process transition that Apple just went under, right? It was the big shift to 5 nanometer. Right. They're the first company to ship 5 nanometer at scale. Intel is still sort of struggling its way to 7, right? Like th- those pro- those process transitions are where you get the the leap in energy efficiency and what we were always talking about was when the MacBook Air went to the Haswell chips and the battery life just skyrocketed. That's what this felt like to us. The performance is great, but the battery life jump is more meaningful for more people, I think. And so the real question is whether they reaped all of those benefits at once because of the process transition or they can keep scaling that over time. Like I, I don't know the answer, yeah. but it it's it's like one of the big outstanding questions of what are the limits of what Apple made here is – do they just pick it up this time because of an enormous and very difficult process transition that is years ahead of Intel? But or is it baked into just sort of their architecture versus something like Snapdragon? Well, and is there is there something to the fact of I think there is. I think it's human psychology that there is something to having the bar raised that forces everybody to accept it and elevate their games, right? Like, you know, Steve Jobs famously described the original iPhone as being five years ahead of the competition. And that's such an abstract Bezos chartian thing, five (laughs) years ahead of what, you know, but in some sense it was true. You know, in some sense you could say that it took about five years for Android phones to sort of get into the, it just be in the ballpark in certain regards, but they did, Right. And I'm not, that's not me saying that Android phones within five years of the iPhone were equal to the iPhone, but, but they were certainly closer than other phones were in 2007. Right. In 2007, it was like the iPhone, you know, famously, it made the, the people at RIM after the announcement held a meeting the next day. And their conclusion coming out of the meeting of their executive leadership was that Apple had just lied and made up, <laughs> you know, said, you know, that, that the things they're saying that this iPhone does can't be true and sort of spent six months until they could like buy one and see it spinning their wheels on that disbelief, you know? And, but then, if, you know, if it, you know, RIM obviously didn't catch up, but the industry did. And I feel like this might, you know, the result is that Apple's laptop chips may not be so far ahead of the competition in a few years, not because Apple doesn't have the headroom, but because everybody's going to have to catch up. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, when you talk about that, that phone, I, I sat through, I cannot tell you how many ill-fated briefings about why resistive touchscreens were superior to capacitive touchscreens. Like, <laughs> just like horror. And I was like, you know, it sucks, but that's what they had. That was like, that was the technology that was available to them at scale. Apple had their, their you know, they, they were starting from zero and going to a small base so they could spend on superior technology that was harder to build, whereas the big companies just didn't have access to it. It all it did wash out a lot faster. I think one of the big stories with phones, and you can see it actually with the M1, the big story here is that phones are such a huge market that they've commoditized all of these other little bits and bobs that make a phone. 
And so now you have an M1, which is just a, you know, a supercharged phone chip that Apple has learned to build at scale, even through a difficult processor transition. That has, you can just see how that will, like TSMC knows how to build five nanometer chips at scale. They make Apple's chips. They're going to sell that to all their other customers over time. Uh, and that's going to get commoditized. And Apple will stay ahead of the curve because that's the thing that they do. But I think that that catch-up period is a lot shorter than it used to be. I see. I'll, I, and I don't think you're going to disagree with me, but I'm going to I'm going to object to one phrase you just used, which is calling it a phone chip. And I think I'm I'm as guilty of that as anybody that we've all collectively believed that these are that what Apple's been making with the A14, A13, A12, going back in time, are really really good and ever better phone chips because that's where they've been used. And the iPad, if we really want to just boil down what could be a two-hour episode easily <laughs> of itself, what's wrong with the iPad is that it is still largely just a big phone, yeah. you know, and limited by iPad OS in many ways based on limitations that make perfect sense for phones to preserve battery life and extend availability and, and you know this, that, and the other thing that maybe don't make sense for the way people want to use iPads as personal tablet workstations. And we've internalized that. And then it's like, no, they're actually just good. They're just computers. You know, like if you just sort of take a step back and stop thinking them as phones, as tablets and laptops, and just think, well, they're all just computers and they're in different instantiated and different form factors. They're just great computer chips. And it just so happens that they're making and selling most of them. And even by the standards of the iPhone 12 Pro Max, little, little tiny <laughs> pocket size Unix workstations that you put in your, they're just great computer chips. So I, I, I agree with you. And I think if Dieter was here, he would be like shaking his fists at you that he's been saying they're all just computers for a decade. Because uh, it's our expectations of what they do that define their limitations. I think what, again, this is prognosticating the roadmap of, of these chips. We'll see how it goes. Yeah, the they are just all great computer chips, but the constraints, the design customer experience constraints of a MacBook Air and an iPhone 12 Pro Max are pretty similar, especially because the phone is almost as big as the laptop. So you're <laughs> you're still looking at battery life. You're still looking at heat. You're still looking at portability to, to whatever extent. You take that chip out of that context where it has always sort of been designed for that context. And Apple will even tell you, you know, we think performance for what? That's, that's a, the metric and we will never go beyond it. We're never going to break this ethos. And then you say, okay, we actually have to make a Mac Pro out of this. And people are actually still going to want external GPUs on that computer. And so we have to spin up PCI Express for this machine. Like, there's a bunch of stuff computers outside of this envelope need to do that we've never seen this architecture do. Whereas I think with the Air and to some extent the Pro, actually the Pro is a really interesting one we should talk about. But to, to definitely for the Air, um, the the sort of design constraints are so similar to what you want from an iPad that the OS letting you do more with it un- unlocks the chip in you know a very powerful way. Right. What you want to do with a Mac Pro is totally different. And I think even the MacBook Pro to me is by far the odd man odd man out of this entire lineup, right? Like I know why the Mac Mini exists. It's because people love it and they can make one and you can do all kinds of stuff with it. Why not put a fast chip in it? You can see why there's no Intel MacBook 
air available, right? Like, why would you? The pro is like, if you need the power that a fan gives you because you're rendering for a bit longer, you definitely want more than two ports. Right. So I, I'm, that's the one I'm like, why did they make that one? Yeah, and they've been making it ever since we were stuck without a Retina MacBook Air, right? And yeah. famously, it was when they first introduced the two-port 13-inch modern Intel MacBook Pro. At the end of the introduction, Phil Schiller even said, by the way, some people have been waiting for uh, a Retina MacBook Air. Well, look at this 13-inch MacBook Pro. It actually has a smaller footprint, you know, like on stacked on top of it. It's actually smaller by volume, even though it's not wedge-shaped, and it's faster, and it starts at $1,300. And without saying, so this is the 13-inch MacBook Air, which it wasn't, right? They eventually did come out with a Retina 13-inch mm-hmm. MacBook Air, which is why he didn't say it. But a lot of people read between the lines and thought, oh, there's never going to be a Retina MacBook Air. You're supposed to buy this, and they're just calling it a MacBook Pro. But it is it, it is one of the weirdest naming things in Apple's lineup because there's clearly – it's not a – it sounds like a very subtle difference, right? You say to somebody who doesn't really know the details – well, some of the 13-inch MacBook Pros have two ports and some <laughs> some which cost more and are a little they're faster and they have four ports and you think, "Oh, well that's a natural way for a 13-inch Pro laptop to span the mid to high end, right? That it has some have two ports, some have four ports and then the four-port ones are faster chips." Okay. But it's like two different product lines. It really they should they should not have the same name. Only uh, no other company but Apple would would give them the same name. And you know they shouldn't therefore shouldn't have quite the identical form factor other than the ports either, right? And it it's specific to the word pro, where it's just you know Apple uses pro. I keep hammering this over and over again. Apple uses pro. Sometimes what they really mean is what everybody thinks pro means, which means professional. And sometimes they just mean more expensive and nicer. Yeah. You know, it's, it's like, but I would never, I, you know, this is like the old game. Like, do you just spend the incremental money to have the slightly nicer thing? Is it worth it? And so with the iPhone 12 pro, which is nominally what I am on this show to talk about. Um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> We're like 30 minutes deep in the laptops. Uh, but, you know, I think the money to get the pro phone this year is like extremely well worth it. And especially if you're looking at the the pro phone and you can deal with the size, the money to get the pro max is like a no brainer. Assuming you can deal with the size and that's all that's fine. Right. Like um, I just on uh on my podcast decoder, we had Phil Spencer from Xbox. And I was like, why do you have two Xboxes? He's like, the names are bad. We know it, but people walk <laughs> into a store and they just see the price points and that's all they care about. And you can understand it. So I totally buy it right with the phones. It's like, you spend more money, you get one more camera lens and then the phone gets bigger. Great. It makes sense with the MacBook air and the pro it's, they're so similar that I would never spend the money to go from the air to the pro, unless I had that, that need for sustained performance, which very, very few people do. And if I do have that need, I'm going to wait to see what the better pro looks like right. because I, I, you know, I, I almost certainly need more ports. And I think, and this goes back to your, are they phone chips or computer chips? I have no idea what this thing looks like when it has more than 16 gigs of Ram right? because at eight gigs, it does appear to be a little performance managed. Right. I, uh, 
I don't know. I feel like they managed it right. I wish that these 13-inch MacBook Pros somehow could have a different name. You know, I don't know what it would be. Uh, uh, MacBook. I know, but they already spoiled that with the one. I'm not that Apple's opposed <laughs> like they to care. right. Like they care about reusing <laughs> names, but like, what is a MagSafe connector? Like, who knows? But I do think I do kind of think that they misused the the just plain no adjective MacBook name for the adorable little 12 inch no fan. This is what we clearly like to build, and we're trying our best with what Intel has to offer. But yeah, it's kind of slow. MacBook, but I still feel like that was that that should have been like the MacBook Nano or something because like the most striking element about it was oh my god this makes the MacBook Air look thick and heavy and big yeah. and it's tiny as opposed to just plain MacBook should be like the iPhone 12 right not the 12 Mini not the Pro not the Max just the iPhone 12 that's this is like the main new iPhone and then you can define all the other ones based on how they relate to it that that the the 13-inch MacBook Pro should be the 13-inch MacBook just this is a MacBook yeah i mean i think you're you're running into the well you're you're doing fine i think apple is running into they just have a billion customers right so they they're not they, they have to consistently re, and they're very good at this they have to reinforce and build on what people already know this goes to your point about Slow developer transition to Apple Silicon, right? This year, you know this. Next year, we're going to give you one more fact. Yeah. I think with the names, they're eager to reuse names. The front camera on the iPhone is still technically called the iSight. <laughs> is Come it on. really? I thought it was yes. the FaceTime camera. I don't they know. Keep, everyone calls it the FaceTime the camera, and Apple's like, our, our four-megapixel iSight. It's like, I don't know what you're talking about. But I, the, I think they keep that consistency from year to year just because they're they're – market is so big that any change carries an enormous communication cost. And I think that's what happened with the Air. The Air was their most popular laptop. They tried to make it go away, and people kept buying it. So they're like, screw it. We're just going to make a new Air. Yeah. Yeah, and I kind of feel like they know things. They know some things about the people who buy them that they're not never going to tell for competitive reasons, not just, oh, we're secretive and we just don't talk. But, you know, and I wouldn't be surprised if there's just a segment of the MacBook buying population who who thinks of themselves as having quote unquote pro needs. And so they want a MacBook Pro, but they really, they don't need a pro version. They need, you know, something that, you know, like $1,300. And so, okay, well, we'll give you one that has the pro name on it and that way you'll buy it. Even though, honestly, <laughs> honestly, you wouldn't come close to taxing the MacBook Air. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think Apple's brilliant in just getting that extra little. I think that's the iPhone 12 Pro. Yeah. It's a little bit better. But it, costs, it costs substantially more. But if you're going to be there, you might as well be there. Yeah. All right, we can come back to the MacBook. Let me take a break while I'm thinking about it and thank our first sponsor. It's our good friends at Linode. Uh, Linode, the company that hosts Daring Fireball. I love this company. You know, they're headquartered right here in Philadelphia. Great company. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing enterprise infrastructure, you deserve simple, affordable, and accessible cloud computing solutions that allow you to take your project to the next level. It's hosting for nerds. Really, that's what that's what it is. Simplify your cloud infrastructure on Linode's Linux virtual machines to deploy 
develop, deploy, and scale your modern applications faster and easier. And you can get started today with $100 in free credit. This is the best deal in podcast advertising. $100 in free credit for listeners of this show. You can find all the details at linode, L-I-N-O-D-E dot com slash the talk show. They have 11 global data centers. They provide 24-7, 365 human support with no tiers or handoffs. When you need support, you get their great support staff, period. Nice and easy. No, no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And in addition to their shared and dedicated compute instances, you can also use your $100 in credit on their new S3-compatible object storage. So in other words, if you have some kind of application that's programmed up to use AWS S3, you can just swap it out with their S3-compatible APIs and host the stuff on Linode. Uh, they've got managed Kubernetes, which I keep being told I am pronouncing right, and more. Visit, once again, linode.com slash the talk show and click on Create Free Account. That, that's the button to hit to get started. You can create an account for free. Use that uh, The Talk Show code. You get $100 in credit uh, at linode.com slash The Talk Show. Uh, so I, that basically, the bottom line of the M1 reviews, and I finally get into the bottom of reading them all, is... <laughs> It, it it is it they've done something that seems too good to be true is it's super fast and runs cool and they've got a, a translation system that is pretty fast you know it, it's not magic it doesn't run intel as fast as native apple silicon on this but because the chip is so fast and the translation is so good most stuff runs at like 70 percent the speed of native uh code and because the chips are like more than 150% faster uh it actually runs faster than most Intel MacBooks even when you're running Intel code and th- those seem to defy people's beliefs people seem to think you can have fast chips or cool chips and translation or emulation whatever you want to call it stinks and is full of riddled with compatibility errors and even when it does work it runs too slow and none of those things are true. And I think people are having a hard time getting their heads around that. Yeah, you know, the only thing keeping me from instantly buying an M1 Mac Mini, which I I just love the Mac Mini. I've, always, I've wanted one for some reason for a long time, and I've never had a good reason. And I need an M1 test machine, seems like a good enough reason, uh, is that I hate Big Sur. And that's... Mm. You know, I, I just don't like the way it looks. And I have a long personal history of skipping OS ten versions. Like I just I've done it almost subconsciously for like ten years. I think I was like probably the last person to use Snow Leopard. Like Apple was looking at their stats dashboard, they're like, Who's that one person? No, it was me. I think there were a lot of people who held on to Snow Leopard for a long time. It was great. And so this just big sur to me feels like they've got a lot of new ideas in this OS particularly around notifications and control center. And I'm just going to wait for them to figure it out. And that is the only thing that would keep me from instantly buying one of these machines uh, because it turns out I get a lot of notifications. So to have that broken in any way for me is, it's just a real mess. So that's literally it. That's the yeah. only thing I, that, and I think you and Joanna have probably done like forty-five rounds on the webcam. Yeah, but <laughs> that's like whatever. I have external webcams, so. Um, but yeah, to me, it's 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 really comes down to these are great machines, 
there's a lot of new ideas in them. And one of those ideas for me anyway is just the workflow notifications has changed so dramatically with the OS. Yeah. I'm not going to upgrade any of my Macs for a year. Yeah. I, I think it's, I don't think there's any hesitation in my mind to say that the most disruptive thing about switching to an M1 Mac is Mac OS 11 Big Sur. And, yes. and only in the exact same ways that it would be if you upgraded your existing machine to Mac OS 11 Big Sur. No question in my mind that that's the most disruptive thing for most people. I, I To me, Catalina was the one that I just never liked. And I didn't upgrade my, my main machine to Catalina until like August. And by then it was mostly ironed out and it, I didn't regret it. Um, but I, you know, that's almost that's like ten months after it shipped. Uh, I was definitely not going to upgrade to Catalina, but it has one feature, one extremely. This is how precious I am about workflows. There was one thing in Catalina that made my workflow better, and I upgraded. It's when you take a screenshot mm. and that image drops to the bottom right corner. Yeah. You can click on it directly and drag it into a window. Yeah, and do something with it, right? And do something with it right from that little right. preview. And you couldn't do that in the older version. I was like, well, crap. I'm not here. I go. Yeah. Damn it. But but I I have to say so I've only used Catalina full time since like August and then I started spending splitting a lot of time with Big Sur on a test machine while it was in beta and now that I'm using this I have to be on Big Sur. And so I I'm okay and and there are you know we again talk about a 2 hour episode of a podcast. I do have some complaints about the <laughs> macOS Big Sur UI design and I can't wait to write about them once I catch my breath on all this review stuff on Daring Fireball and hopefully try to get some of this you know the attention of people who can fix it but um but overall I like it and I kind of feel I kind of feel like it's a better take on this style I mean it's obvious what they're going for and what they've been going for with iOS 7 inspired macOS ever since whatever the version is. I, I, you know, macOS 10.10 or 10.11, whenever it was when they first switched to something that vaguely looked like the iOS 7 look and feel flat, flatter. Um, and it, it's like it never sat right. And it's like those, those years, like they switched, they wanted to get them on the same uh, branding universe i don't know but like they did it before they had the san francisco typeface ready to go so like those first two years the mac was using helvetica as the system font which never looked right it was just it's just like what is this this is and it's like you could use it for a whole year and every time i'd look at it i would think that just looks just looks weird that just doesn't look like a mac system font and it's not like, oh, I'm stubborn and I don't want the system font to ever change. What was it? Lucida Grand, Grandy? I don't know how you pronounce it. <laughs> you know, it was Lucida Grandy for the whole Mac OS X era from 10.0 yeah. through whenever they switched to this to Helvetica. But then as soon as they switched it to San Francisco, it was like, ah, ice water in hell. This is, this is a font. But, you know, maybe it's not somebody's favorite font, but it's like this could be the Mac system font. Nice. But yeah, I I feel like Big Sur. They went back and it was like they gave a different team of designers. They said, "Okay, forget about what we've been using for the last five years. Just forget it. Make a version of the macOS system that looks like more inspired by the general look of iOS." And it's you're, sort of like a retry at the same thing that they've been trying for five years. You're walking into it, man. You 
this whole game, right, is to make the things look like each other so that the huge audience of iOS users feels comfortable and at home using a Mac and switches at a higher rate. Like, that's what you want. Yeah. You want it to be a seamless ecosystem. You know what the biggest holdup is? You touch an iPhone. And so yeah. you're showing people all of these controls and all of these interface elements that look like the things they used to touch that are harder to use with a mouse than before. And you're not letting them touch them. I like that to me, I spend more time. I bet if you measured it, I spend more time clicking in the upper right of my screen than anything when I use a Mac. Cause I'm closing notifications or I'm monkeying around with the Wi-Fi and the volume and input audio inputs and outputs. I'm, I'm going to do not disturb, which is really easy on Catalina. All of that stuff got harder because all of it is meant for swipes or it looks like it's meant for swipes. It's not meant for clicking and it's driving me insane. Yeah, but that's, uh, you know, and some of it, it the, I think the stuff that it, uh, like the notification center stuff, definitely it's true because they actually are the same widgets, right? Yes. Right. And, and that is a swift UI thing. And, I think it's working out pretty well. And it's sort of the first really serious test of Swift, Swift UI that Apple's doing. And I, you know, it's just one of these transitions that has to take years. And no matter you, you know, if 10 years from now we look back at it and we say, wow, the transition to Swift UI as the UI framework for Apple wasn't that a breeze. And it's like you forget that it's like, you know, like the first three or four years of Mac OS X where it's like, uh, well, while you were living it, it wasn't so smooth. It was actually kind of awful. And that, not that SwiftUI is awful, but that it just was, wasn't was deep enough to do anything useful. And now they've got these widgets that ship the same uh, across platforms. Um, and obviously they have to be designed for touch on the touch ones and not for touch on the Mac. I, I just think, I I just don't see them going with that style of design for everything because it would it, it there are certain aspects of the Mac where it wouldn't work. I I don't know. I don't see it as touch being the answer to the problems. I I think the real question for Apple is that these machines are in many ways a chip swap, right? And that's how they manage the Intel transition too. You, you already know everything, tried and true design. They're just faster because of one part that we can identify, the chip. Is you go beyond that and you say, now we can build around the chip itself and what can we accomplish? It feels natural that that endless, uh, this, this here's your two-hour podcast, that endless iPad versus Mac conversation right. is going to get even harder, right? And the, the number of people who just want to touch it on their Mac because there's one game they want to play and touch alternatives is a horrible way to play an iOS game on a Mac. That number is just going to grow. Whereas the number of people who value the iPad because it's way more simple is also going to grow. And I think that's that tension cannot be resolved by saying one has a touch screen and one doesn't. Yeah. But if the, if the screen doesn't detach like a tablet, I don't know that the games are going to be that fun anyway. You know, like, has any windows laptop manufacturer ever just sent you a windows laptop with a touch screen? Nah. Yeah. But if one of them is out there listening, just what make, would I, what would just I do, do with it, it for a month? I, it, 
it's really nice. Even uh, on Windows, and Windows 10 has like gotten better over time. I, I mean, I but use it is my actually very nice to just like swipe up on a screen. Nah, I, I, I use my iPad you use your as a iPad laptop. Like that. Yeah, and I don't really. If the touchscreen stopped working when it was in the keyboard, I, I I wouldn't even notice. I honestly, every once in a while, I touch, but and and I don't. I certainly don't play games while it's in that form factor, right? When I do play a game on the iPad, it, it's like I pick it up. It has to be detachable, and all sorts of other stuff has to happen. I, it's, it's this weird, I, I don't know. I feel like you and Joanna and others who see this as coming, uh, are underestimating the way that Apple looks at these sort of things that they're not, I don't think Apple looks at it and th- now I could be wrong because I, it, according to my logic, Joanna and I went over this by the same yeah. logic, they shouldn't have shipped the iPhone apps running on Big Sur at all, period. Because the basic idea is it should be very nice and designed for what it does from top to bottom, A to Z, or just not at all. And so if it's not designed for touch in every way with every button, then you shouldn't have touch. Even if touch would be nice just for scrolling. I mean, that's what Ben Thompson is always telling me. is Even if it just worked for scrolling, it would be nice to just reach up and be able to flip your finger and scroll something. And I get it that if it would be nice and that people do if they've spent time using another device that is touched and then they sit down at the MacBook and they see a web page and they want to just scroll it and they touch the screen and they're like, oh yeah, it doesn't work on this machine. But I'm telling you that Apple's way of looking at it is, well, wait, if we give you touch for that, you're going to want touch for everything. And like the red, yellow, green buttons need to be made twice as big and put twice as far apart. And then that eats into the space and et cetera and so forth all the way down the line. And how do you select text, right? How do you, it's selecting text is still a nightmare on <laughs> iOS. Yeah, I, I, I guess what I would say, and I'm almost certainly just recapitulating Joanna and Ben, is Apple is wrong. And by extension, you are too, John. And <laughs> here's like, people are smarter now than we give them credit for. And the idea that there are things that are good to touch on a screen and an interface and things where you want to use your more precise input method is not out of the realm of what people understand about computers anymore. And I think maybe Apple's still just gun shy because every Windows touch experience for like two decades was horrible right. and I never want to build that. But I just, I Lightroom, I it beyond scrolling. I edit photos in Lightroom like right. at least three times a week. And when I do it on my iPad, I'm like, oh, I just wish I had a mouse. Right. And when I do it on my laptop, I'm like, I wish I could just pinch to zoom. Right. And or, there's no reason that I, I can do that on a windows PC. Right. Or just smudge your finger over a face, you know? And it's yeah. funny because of like Lightroom editing is exactly a thing where it, it's like the, the computer world has come full circle to the way that, you know, that's like what dodging and burning was in, yeah. you know, like, like that's the origins of the term in Photoshop is that, you know, people would actually in a dark room, like just rub the, rub the photo as it was developing to lighten a, a spot. Yeah. I mean, I it just, I think they're on the path to it. it is, I think Federighi said, why would, that's not even remotely on our mind, which I think is a classic example of saying, Apple saying something is a horrible idea right until they do it. And they're like, we did it the best way. I'm very much hoping they are setting that curve for the next. Like I said, the evolution of the Mac is about to get very interesting. What does a touchscreen iMac look like? I don't know. But they they have given themselves the ability to to make that thing in a way that I don't think the Intel chips ever let them do. 
Well, I don't want to get distracted by touchscreen arguments, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> again, I, I, uh, so about those phones. <laughs> I will say this. Here's the other thing. The other thing that I'm I'm I, I come back to because my my podcast machine here is this 2014 MacBook Pro that I it's one of my most beloved computers I've ever owned. I still do love it, but it does get hot. It does have a fan that turns on less than most Macs of MacBooks of that era, but. It, it's funny how just being in Mac OS still to this day, like using a computer, it was clear you were running a physical machine, right? And, and the older you go in history and the older you are, the more you remember it, right? Like floppy drives made noise. Um, spinning hard disks made some amount of noise and if they made a lot of noise then you knew you were, you knew you were in trouble right it was like a red alert back in the spinning hard disk era especially when drives were less reliable that if you started to hear a clicking noise from your hard drive immediately save anything that wasn't saved immediately you know back up as best you could because it was extremely high likelihood that your hard drive was about to go bad because it was making a physical clicking noise, right? A physical thing. Fans come on, heat is generated. Uh, when you, we used to have spinning discs and you could watch movies, you could put your hand over, you knew which side the disc drive was on because it spun and you could feel it. And it's so, it is sort of freaky, even though we've had phones that don't have fans and iPads that don't get hot and don't have fans and do computer-like things. When you're using a Mac and you're just used to, well, if I do this, if I export a video uh, and it, you know, it's a 10-minute video, I know that it's going to get hot and the fan's going to come on. And that doesn't happen. It is weird. It's it's just freaky. Like my my story, I told this last week, but I have to tell it again. Was I double checked with Jason Snell before I published my review to see if because I couldn't make the fan come on the 13 inch MacBook Pro, and I had this panicked moment of I just written over a thousand words about how the fan it doesn't come on for me, and even when I'm trying to, and I thought, what if I have a lemon hardware unit? <laughs> <laughs> and, and he was like, no, I can't. it's really hard to get the fan to come on. And I'm like, yeah. oh, my God, thank God. It was just panic. But it's it's just weird because I just associate Mac OS with a machine that in some ways, even though it, they've been getting lesser and lesser as fewer and fewer parts of the computer actually spin, uh, they, they manifest themselves physically in a way that the M1 Macs don't. Yeah. I find it very hard to get the fan and the, the pro to spin up to. I think we ended up doing very synthetic things, right? We ran Cinebench for 30 minutes on a right. loop. Um, we have a render test we do. We we render out the same review video. So we all download the gigabytes and gigabytes of project files and then render it out through Premiere. Towards the end of that, I could get it to do it. But again, the it was just hard. Right, it's it's just a difficult thing to do. And Dieter's MacBook Air on that same render test, which is very real world in in Intel emulation or in Rosetta translation in Premiere, which you're not even really supposed to do. Right, his was only a little bit slower than mine, and the Air was clearly doesn't have a fan to spin up. Yeah. Um, so it's like the the even just the the value of that fan. It really it really feels subjective. Where I think the actual difference for me in terms of a machine, and I think this is less M1 and more iOS versus macOS, the Mac will just tell you about itself. 
right? You can just open system profiler and like, it'll tell you that it doesn't have like a SATA port. <laughs> like it'll, it just reveals itself to you. It, you can open terminal and like screw around and see actually how fast the cores are running. Uh, whereas no iOS device ever does. And I think that that abstraction to me is the last bit of this is a piece of hardware that I actually have control over. Whereas right. I, when the things you're talking about hard drive, right, the hard drive starts clicking and you know, like, oh, I better get a new hard drive or the fan spins up or the discs start reading. Like you can hear that stuff. That was a very tactile sense of this is my machine and I'm responsible for it. And now as those like mechanical things go away in the sense that you have to change your engine oil on your computer or whatever starts to disappear, what's left is I'm still responsible for how this computer operates in a way that I've never felt that way about iOS and even to an enormous extent Android. And it just it, it, it just feels weird. It's like this weird uh, world's colliding. Right. It does. It is. There are many ways where you're using an M1 Mac and you're like, this is, this is just like using an iPad, but only in the sense of it being a physical device, right? It's like your mental model of what you can do and how you expect things to go. Like you just don't expect that you can, you know, run a thing in the background and compile, uh, you know, some big project that's going to take 30 minutes in Xcode and just, leave it hot, you know, command H it to put it in the background and just go about your business, catching up on email and reading in Safari or whatever, and just know that it's still running as fast as it can in the background. You know, it, it, you just don't think like that. You don't do things like that on the iPad. I mean, literally because there is no Xcode on yeah. iPad, but, but like when you put things in the background on iPad, you just expect that they get suspended, not that they keep flying. You know, no, you, beyond suspended, you expect that when you reopen the app, it'll hopefully, reopen. Yeah, hopefully it's still right where I left off. But yeah, and you know, for the most part, in recent years, it has you know, it's gotten a lot better at that. Things don't start over from scratch, or or if they do, the apps are written to you know to handle it in a way that it's almost indistinguishable from just having been suspended and reanimated. But it, it just, I don't know. I, my big takeaway from this is that the M1 and a Mac experience just makes me think, well, what is going on with iPad? Like I'm more curious about the future of iPad than I am about the future of Mac, even though I have lots of exciting questions about what they could do with truly pro chips. It's like, it just really makes the iPad to me seem so hamstrung by its OS. Yeah. But that's the secret of the iPad. They could have launched the first iPad with an Intel chip, right? Assuming Right. appropriate chip existed. It wouldn't have made a difference. The whole point was, here's a new form factor of computing. Here's a new set of assumptions. We're f- effectively starting from scratch, and we're going to build up over time. And what they've built up to over time is something that looks almost exactly like a Mac. Yeah. And now the Mac has the M1, and they look even more like each other. And I think, yeah, yeah maybe that thing you're talking about, that that 12-inch MacBook that's just called a MacBook, maybe that thing just is an iPad. I don't know. Right? Like, at the end right. of the day, like... Maybe there is a convergence point. I, I, look, you ask anybody at Apple about this, and they they just look at you like you're the craziest person to ever live. They're like, no one cares. People just buy what they want to buy, and we make them all at the end. Like, we're the richest company in the world, and it, this plan has been working, and these problems are all in your head. And I think to a certain extent, that is an enormous sor- source of power for Apple. Like, it's true that they just they make these things, and they sell as many as they can make. 
On the other hand, there's just a lot of confusion right in that zone for regular people. Yeah. And especially now when you can get a MacBook Air that goes for 12 hours on a charge, why would you tell anyone to buy an iPad? Yeah, and you can do it without – you can do it while using Chrome as your browser, right? And, and yeah. that to me is sort of the other – When you the, go to watch Netflix, you're not, in, you're not immediately sucked into a spiral of extremely <laughs> weird politics. Right, right. right. Like you just run, you just do it. It's fine. Right. You just do it and it looks great. It it takes complete advantage of the resolution of your screen and it's nice and bright and the video just plays and it, the machine doesn't get hot and it's like, "Oh, I better not put it on my lap because it, it it'll, you know, literally make my lap hot." I know <laughs> it just runs. It just runs the way you think that yeah. it should. And it's like, yeah, it actually you watching a TV show on Netflix shouldn't shouldn't tax your computer or or like you said, get you into this weird politics yeah. of oh, there's not wait. a button that says please email Phil Schiller so you can subscribe in the app. Like right. there's a whole world of, where iOS actually has gotten more complicated than a Mac. Right. Be, because right. of how they manage the application ecosystem. Right. I, I also do I do wonder too though, and and it seems like that is if before I we leave off the, the Mac segment. I mean they clearly are are leaning on some of the hey, here's the reason why we're letting iPad apps run on the Mac now is for video and they keep promoting HBO Max because you can get the Oof. HBO Max app. And the it it's so much worse than watching in the web browser I other than the fact that the app lets you download for offline viewing. And A, who's doing that now? I mean, I know that we're not going to be permanently in a pandemic quarantine, but everything else about it is so much worse than just going to your web browser and typing HB and autofilling the rest. And, you know, and again, like with Netflix, like people just know when they're on a laptop type thing, how do you get to Netflix? You don't go for an app. You just go to your browser, you type NE. It auto completes, hit return, and there you are, you know, watching whatever show you were just watching. Yeah, you know, one of one of the funniest things, this is a total tangent, but you know, we covered the rise and very fast fall of Quibi. Um very closely. Because <laughs> it was it's like this here's here's a car crash. We're gonna look at it. And one of the problems I had was they didn't let anybody screenshot and make memes out of their shows. Like right. and Julia Alexander at the Verge wrote all this stuff about it. It was great coverage. Um, right. And Tom Conrad, the, who was the, the CTO of Quibi, had an entire thread. We finally built a screenshot capability. But because of DRM, both at a technical level and our deals to use DRM, we can't just let you take a screenshot. We had to build an entire other iOS flow uh, for screenshots. And I think they had to build one similarly in Android. On the Mac, people just open <laughs> Netflix and Chrome and take screenshots. And then like that is like a huge right. earned media opportunity for all these shows. And I think that level of the you know the the mobile operating systems are just built differently with different assumptions, with different capabilities. It when you get to that point where what people want to do is just take a screenshot of Tiger King and and tweet it, it's way easier on a Mac. Like by far, it does not require the CTO of a company to build a screenshot tool. And I, I think that right. stuff just keeps redounding to the map because I think people are just getting smarter and smarter about how to use computers. It makes total sense. It's just a progression of time. But eventually, you're like, I just want to do yeah. this thing, and, and Mac always lets you do it. 
And it's just such a crazy mindset, too, that it ever got into it that, hey, we can't even let people take a screenshot of one frame of the show because they might <laughs> yeah, you know, it's going to reduce the value of Quibi. Yeah, I don't know. Like, yeah. Yeah, it's like, you know, it's like some version of the famous, you know, step two is dot, 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 you know, step three is profit. But except in this case, it's like one, allow them to take a screenshot of one of our shows. Step two, dot, dot, dot. Step three, piracy, <laughs> you know, like, but it was just a screenshot, right? And it's like, all they wanted to do is have a piece of artwork to, you know, put in their article or put in the social media post or just, you know, just show a funny frame, you know, like, oh my God, this is so funny. Look at this. And here's a frame. And then maybe people would actually watch Quibi. Well, yeah, but, I mean, but this is true of Netflix too. It's, you cannot screenshot Netflix. You can't screenshot HBO in their apps on their platforms. Right. And I think that I know. is right. Right. That's because the video subsystems of those OSs were made for Hollywood because those were the app developers that wanted right. to do it and address that audience. Whereas in a web browser on Windows or uh, uh, the Mac, those are just general purpose video systems. And the screenshot system was not architected knowing right. that that thing would exist. And I, that this is just a long way of saying eventually the, the iPad problem is going to be that it's a built on all of those assumptions and looks exactly like a Mac yeah. that has none of those limitations. Right. And it has, it, 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 it'll be hard for it to grow as opposed to already. It, it's easier for the Mac to get simpler in certain modal ways. If that's your use case and that's the type of user you are than for the iPad to get more complicated because it's going to start running into those limitations that are sort of hard coded into the way it yeah. works. And I, I think that's, I, I, I don't say this is a problem. I think it's, here's one of the most interesting challenges Apple as a company has, and then around it in the, you know, the ecosystem of computer companies, it is fascinating to see people try to solve that problem faster, right? So Microsoft is way yeah. ahead of that curve with the surface line. Whether or not you want to run windows is like another question and whether that's going to work great with your phone, yet another question. But you look at any of the surface products and they're trying very hard to make that line as blurry as possible. Yeah, definitely. And it even the names again. <laughs> I get so confused as to which one is which. It's like, wait, which one's the detaches? I don't know. Pro? Uh, yeah, there's a know. there's yeah, it's I've, the same it's the same as any other Microsoft product. You know how you tell them apart? They're prices. Like <laughs> it's like yeah. Microsoft is like <laughs> Surface Go, Surface Pro, Surface Laptop, Surface it's like, I don't know, one is three ninety nine and one is fourteen ninety nine, and that's how you know. Yeah. Anyway, the last thing I will say is that the, to me, the most interesting thing about the M1's hardware advantages is that it really, they do manifest themselves even if you're not a Mac user, by which meaning that you don't use a lot of apps or very few apps that are the Mac apps. Like maybe you don't use Apple's mail app. You, you just go to Gmail in your browser and maybe the browser's Chrome and you do all these things that don't put you in the Mac world and you don't use these things that Mac users know and you're not familiar with the way standard shortcuts are and so you're not weirded out by the weird moon man shortcuts in this app that you use that aren't Mac-like. But your computer does say MacBook and it is Mac OS ten, And the way that the M1 makes all that just work better, even though you're not a Mac user, is uh, you're just a user who uses the Mac 
is like a huge advantage for Apple. And I think it's going to be for a few years where even if you just want to use Chrome mostly, it's really hard not to recommend like a thousand dollar MacBook Air as the machine to do it. Oh, yeah. I mean, again, this was our huge debate over whether or not you give this computer a 10. We could have done it and we would have justified it and it would, we could have done it. We were, we were this close to doing it. And then we took one step back and said, well, this webcam is really bad and we're going to ding it half a point. Like, that's it. <laughs> and I, that is a huge jump. It really, what we kept comparing it to was that Haswell MacBook Air, where for yeah. three years, four years, every time Joanna reviewed a laptop at The Verge, the last line would be like, for $200 more, you can buy a MacBook Air. And that was the standard. Yeah. And I think this new Air is easily the standard that everybody else has to hit. Yeah, and it, the one to compare everything against, you know, Anyway, let me take a break here. Thank our next sponsor. It's our good friends at Mint Mobile. Breaking up with your old wireless provider just got a whole lot easier thanks to Mint Mobile. They were the first company to sell premium wireless service online only. And now Mint Mobile is introducing their unlimited data plan for just 30 bucks a month. Let that thing sink in. 30 bucks unlimited. How much is... uh how much are you paying for your current plan? Probably a lot more than 30 bucks. For people who hate their phone bill and are just ready to cut their ties with those big providers, Mint Mobile offers their premium plan for just 30 bucks a month. And by going online only, where in really today, do you really want to go into a phone carrier showroom? Probably not. They're, they've been online only from the beginning. It cuts out all the costs of retail. That's how they're passing savings on to you. And all of their plans come with unlimited talk and text and high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Uh, Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan. Just pop the SIM card in, and uh, you keep using your same phone number. Just transfer it over. You don't have to worry about any kind of hassle. Nobody, You don't have to tell people you've switched. Nobody will notice except that your bill will be lower. And if you're not 100% satisfied, Mint Mobile has you covered with a seven-day money-back guarantee couldn't be easier. You sign up. They ship you the SIM card in the mail, and that's how you get started. Really easy to get started. 30 bucks a month, and they ship it right to your door for free. Go to mintmobile.com, mintmobile.com slash talk show. That's mintmobile.com slash talk show, and cut your wireless bill to 30 bucks a month. It's time to talk iPhones. iPhone 12. I can't. I, I have hardly talked about I, I'm number one, I don't do enough episodes of my show, probably, but number two, I just I feel like I haven't caught my breath. I was hoping I was like, please let Neli be reviewing the 12 Pro Max. Please <laughs> let Neli be reviewing the 12 Pro Max. And I was so glad that you were, because I knew that you would push it. And I I just I I was I'm so averse to the size, I was like, forget it. I'm spending my week where I had both the mini and the pro max, mostly with the mini. Um, Cause it's more of interest to me. Um, and it's like, I, oof. if the, if the 12 pro not max had the same camera system as the 12 pro max, I guess that's what I would buy for myself. Um, but I, I was like, I did. And I was like, I don't get this camera system. Like I see what it should, how it should be better. But my initial testing was like, I yeah. don't see it. I'm not seeing what's better about it. And then I read your review and it was like, yeah, there's some of that in here. And I, oh, I see. 
and like your twilight pictures really capture where it, it has some noise differences. I'm curious what you think now for several weeks later. After, are you still using I the am. 12 Pro Max? Mine, mine is on order and it's on its way, but right now I'm using the review unit. Um, and I have been since I, I, I've had it. Um, you know, it's still too big and I don't, I don't think it's like too big. It's not unreasonable, but it's bigger than the last one. And every time I pick it up, I'm like, this thing is, man, if I was still traveling, this would be it. I wouldn't even take a computer with me. It's that big. Um, And so, like, I I think it's right at the edge. It's the first thing I think every time I pick it up. This is right on the line of being too big. The next number up is seven, and a seven-inch screen is a tablet screen. So it's it's right on the line. In terms of the camera, though – um. You know, I should have put this in the review. I didn't. It didn't even occur to me that this is what I was thinking until I read Joanna's review and I saw Marquez's review. And so Marquez was like, these cameras are the same. And I was like, that's not at all. And I realized what was happening is what you actually get out of the Pro Max day to day is it'll just go at a faster shutter speed because it can crank the ISO higher. And that is, right. if you're a photo and, person, that like makes sense. But no one knows that that's how anything works. But at the end of the day, it's just a camera, right? It's got three numbers that it it can monkey with. It can monkey with the aperture, which is fixed on an iPhone. But on a regular camera, you, you get a faster aperture, right. you get more light. You can move the shutter speed around to let more or less light in, uh, freeze motion. Or you can monkey with the ISO to make the sensor more uh, sensitive to light and also generally more noisy. And like that, it's just a, that there's, right. there's a camera in the world that doesn't follow that little equation. And all that's happening with the pro max right. is I just pulled it up here. The regular iPhone 12 pro has a top ISO of 5,808. The pro max has 7,616. And so it just, it, it's, it's, it's an enormous range for a phone. But all that means is it'll just click the shutter faster. And so if you're spending a lot of time, like I did, taking a picture of a toddler at night, you're like, oh, these photos are way better. But if you're doing what in reviewing phones, cameras, reviewing anything in the pandemic has been so hard. So all I'm doing is like running around. I'm like, here's a tree, you know, like that they look exactly the same because that extra shutter speed doesn't buy you anything. And I think that's really, really hard for Apple to market. Right, just the amount of explanation I just did does not fit into an ad. They're like twenty-seven percent more light or whatever, and like that doesn't mean anything except the ISO is str- it, less noise at any given number. It, it, it and that to me was like where it clicked in my head because it's like why they wouldn't do this? Like I know, I know the way Apple thinks, and there's no way that they would go through the effort of shipping an entirely different physical camera system only in the Pro Max if there weren't very practical advantages to doing so. I mean, it's just common sense. You don't have to be an operations <laughs> whiz to think like it would be cheaper if they just put the same system in that the 12 Pro has because then it, they could just mass produce the same one and it's obviously a little cheaper and just stick it in the big one, which is what they've been doing the last few years between the 11 Pro and 11 Pro Max and the 10s and the 10s Max. It's just the same camera system in a bigger phone. Um, but I wasn't seeing what it was, and boiling it down to faster 
captures is exactly it. And that's why I wasn't seeing it. I don't have a toddler anymore. <laughs> I have a sixteen. I have a sixteen-year-old who doesn't move. <laughs> yeah, playing Fortnite, right? Rock still. Um, yeah. Let me get a turn around. Let me get a picture of you playing. Yeah, video you know, games. and even the sensor shift, right? They changed the stabilization. They went from it's optical, it moves the lens, and the smaller phones. On the bigger phone, they moved to sensor shift, which is very much like what Sony and Panasonic do in their mirrorless cameras. That's because the sensor is bigger. I mean, I, I asked, I was like, what do you get out of this? They're like, well, once the sensor gets to about this size, it's faster and easier to move the sensor. And like, maybe there's some little bit of performance advantage at the extremes of the scale, but they were like, look, the 12 pro is a great camera and you should, you should like its performance is good enough for us to ship it, which means it's very good. And so I think they just backed themselves yeah. into a corner in how they talked about this camera because they want to tell you that the things that are the most resonant, which are faster shutter speed, captures more light, bigger sensor. And you that just gives you a, a bunch of expectations that aren't there. And it's not their fault. Like when you hear bigger sensor, what you think of is dramatic depth of field, but it's still a tiny sensor in the grand scheme of things. When you hear yeah. sensor shift, you're like, Oh, I'll be able to just like shake my hand. All, and it's like, yeah, maybe, but it's still the same. What really comes down to, and I think this is where every camera company is guilty of this, not just Apple. When they say it captures more light, that actually means something. And I, I and what it means yeah. is it either has a enormous top end ISO and like DSLRs are cruising their way to 200,000 ISO, or it means right. at any given ISO, you get way less noise. So the ISO is more usable. You can't put that in an ad. I think Apple, even Apple would not. Maybe Phil Schiller would have done that in a keynote because he was such a camera nerd, you know. Like, but they're not going to do that, yeah. especially with these the infomercials that every company is making now. They're not going to do like thirty second infomercial on ISO. But it's really what it means. It means that at any given ISO, it captures more light and less noise. But then on top of it, there's smart HDR three, and I was uh, talking with Seb from Halide, and he was like. They're still running Smart HDR3 as though they're getting 12 Pro photos. So the RAWs have less noise, but the final product, they're still running the noise reduction in Smart HDR3 kind of as aggressively. And I think that that's like you have two camera systems, they're different. You're running your software the same and you're generating it's it's arriving at the same result because it's not so much different. And I think that's where something like Pro Raw, this new format they're gonna ship, will let us really see the differences. Yeah. And I, I know that I, I worry that for some people who aren't photo nerds, that their eyes start rolling back in their head when they start hearing aperture and exposure times. And, but it really is kind of simple. And when you think back to the film era, it, it's, it, you really could see it. Like, so the aperture is just the iris in front of the lens. And when it's open more, it lets in more light. And when it's a smaller circle, it lets in less light. And that changes everything else. Um, the, the exposure time is how long are you taking the exposure for, right? Like, is it one sixty fourth of a second or one two hundredth of a second or like a really slow one, like a half a second, just let light hit the piece of film or the, now it's a sensor, a digital sensor for a half second. And obviously try to hold the camera as still as you can, you know, while that's happening. 
getting that exposure time shorter for a, a subject who is in motion, like like a toddler or a dog or something like that, really it has a people, large practical like, advantage. I took a lot of photos of right. Mars. Drunk people do not hold still. It's very true. Um, you know – it, it, it's, and, and what I saw as a, somebody who understands the way that those things interplay, and I am a sort of a photo nerd and, you know, uh, it, it, I was looking for things and you mentioned it in your review, like depth of field. Like, can you see, like without going into portrait mode where it's fake, do you get more of a, a bokeh effect just from this? And I was like, ah, I'm not seeing it. But it's really not like a photo nerd thing. It really is a very practical – I'm just a person with a three-year-old and I pick up my phone when they're doing something funny or cute, point it at them, frame it, and tap the button. And if you get a better result because it is a much shorter exposure and therefore captures the subject in motion without blur – that's a practical reason to prefer the camera and you're getting better. You know, it could really could be the difference between a keeper and a, ah, that's no good. It's yeah. Boring. And again, I, I come back to just how hard it is to do these reviews, especially of mobile devices during the pandemic before, you know, every other year I come on and I'm like, it's iPhone. We're both exhausted and iPhone season is complete. And I always, I think say to you something like, it's so much fun to work with my entire team for this week. Right. Right, it's, it's still true. I mean, we have an amazing video team and copy editors and, and designers who work on these reviews, and it's great. We did it as best we could remote. But the thing that I missed the most was having the video team with me. And then for the past several years, our video producer, Maria, and I have just like had photo shoots around New York City. We just constructed things we wanted to test, lighting situations we wanted to to test. And I would be like, Mario, go stand in front of this backlit window. And we're going to see how all these phones do. And I could not do that. And I think like most reviewers, I don't want to put my kid in every review 50 times. Like there's right. for a million reasons you don't want to do that. So in the end, I was like, well, I guess these stuffed animals are going to be the iPhone review this year. I have no better choices. And they don't move. So I could ask like, well, right. it'd be great if this stuffed animal would start moving, but it's not going to do that for me. And I think it was hard to communicate that value this time around because of the conditions in which we were reviewing it. And I think because it was hard to set that up and see it every time, it was even then harder to communicate it to everyone. Because you can write a thousand words about how a camera works. People just want to see the photos. And in particularly what they look for in photos, and we've learned this after years of this, they look for which photo is brighter. That That's the one I always think is better. And then if you punch in and show them that one has more detail, they say, no one zooms in on a photo. So like you, you have to like <laughs> do some work to convince people that this stuff matters. And he, we were just limited with what I was generating to even show people. I I love this. I'm going to quote from your review, but I can't shake the feeling that, that the 12th Pro – iPhone 12 Pro Max feel, very much feels like the perfect phone for the life I led before the pandemic. I used to spend a lot of time commuting and on airplanes and otherwise out and about getting work done on my phone. I used to go to a lot of events at night and take a lot of photos in bars. My notes indicate that I used to care a lot about mobile <laughs> network speeds. This phone would have made significant improvements to all those things, but right now it just feels like another screen for social media on the couch. And I really, I could not help but feel the same way. And I also wonder if my 
my very positive feelings and reviews for the 12 mini were biased by that, you know, because to parlay this into a discussion of the opposite 12 iPhone 12, the mini clearly battery life is the single biggest hit because it has a smaller battery and it apps, you know, it Apple's quoted numbers are all, you know, some percentage, you know, 15 to 17% lower than the regular iPhone 12. And I'm like using it and I'm using the hell out of it during the election week, election night week. (laughs) (laughs) I was like on my 12 mini nonstop, like surfing news and updates and vote counts and all this stuff. And it's like, yeah, the battery went down and I could kind of see, you know, just without even using a stopwatch or taking notes, I was like, yeah, I'm not getting the battery life out of this that I would get on the bigger ones. But I was still in my living room and not far from, you know, oh, I could just plug this in while I go to the bathroom and then come out and it's, you know, got 10% more battery again. And, you know, it's it, – it, the 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 things that would most stress a iPhone with limited battery life are irrelevant yeah. you know when you're at home and the times when i would most want the extra reach of a 2.5x telephoto lens or the better camera this ultimate best camera system you can get in an iPhone from the 12 Pro Max well i'm i'm not leaving the house uh, you know how many pictures of my wife and son during pandemic are they going to even let me take <laughs> Right. It's this is just another place where I think having a toddler dramatically changed my feeling about the camera. Cause I'm like, we take 400 photos of her a day and until she tells us to stop. Right. She's, we're not going to stop that. You know, it's funny. I, I have all these battery packs from when I did travel all the time, all these like, USB batteries. And now I just leave them. They're just like scattered <laughs> on the couch all the time. Cause I'm just always sort of like charging the phone again. And so I, my phones are all like at home. They're more charged than ever before. I really think that. That line about mobile network speeds, it's like obviously a dig at, at 5G. That's the one right. thing where like every reviewer unanimously was like, don't care about this. Like stop. Everyone stop yeah. caring about this. Like first of all, you shouldn't be leaving the house. Second of all, even if you do, it's not going to be great. Third of all, when it is great on millimeter wave, you, you take a huge hit to your battery. Um, I think that would have played out on the mini reviews very, very differently. Because when you're not on Wi-Fi, that battery necessarily dies faster with every cell network. And chasing ultra-wideband on the Mini, because it is one of the only small phones that has that radio, has that capability. I think the only small phone that has capability. We would have seen, oh, this battery cannot support this technology in a way that you'd want to use it every day. But Right. Like, yeah, I don't just, know. I'm, it's Even my 12 question. Pro when I was using ultra wideband, I was like, oh, I'm I'm ripping through this battery right now. Like, <laughs> it's fun. I I've gotten I I mean I got over two thousand uh, gigabytes gigabits per second. I don't know what they have, whatever the measurement is in speed test, but and which is amazing. It's absolutely amazing to get two gigabit wireless networking. Period. It's it's impressive to get two gig, gigabit networking with yeah. a cable. Right. And it's like you're doing it on a phone outdoors. But practically speaking, my use case for it was getting an impressive number in speed test. <laughs> I mean, what what was I doing? You know what? Yeah, I thought Joanna's review where she sat in the middle of MetLife Stadium was like one of her most inspired video reviews. But yeah, I think when you when you talk about the mini. Yeah, it, it feels like the perfect phone for this moment because people have wanted a small phone forever. 
And so they, you know, Apple is the master of just slowly creating demand and then delivering you the perfect product. And then you're not stressing it as much as you would if you were taking it out into the world and commuting. And maybe you don't even know that you're standing on the right street corner in Manhattan and the ultra wide band is kicked on and now it's using more battery, right? Like that is the nature of ultra wide band at this moment. You might just from corner to corner as you're walking around, that modem's turning on and off. And so we, no one has really had that experience yet. And so I, I think there's just a lot of questions about that phone in sort of the before time and hopefully, you know, soon in, into next year as this vaccine rolls out into what the next iteration of the world looks like. But at this moment, yeah, if what you want is a great second screen for the NFL to read Twitter on, like the mini seems perfect. Uh, whereas, like I said, every time I pick up the Pro Max, I'm like, man, this thing is big. I can't get used to it. I, I mean, I don't want to. But the other thing that you mentioned, and I, I have very strong feelings about it, especially now that I've spent time with all four phones and they've all settled in, is the f- flattening of the sides. And I think it's really weird because I, I think definitely it looks cooler. And every you know this leaked out of the rumor mill a year in advance, and so we were all sort of expecting it. But I feel like everybody started expecting it when the iPad Pros went to this flat side look that's sort of a calling back to the iPhone 4S and 5 era. Because like when the iPads came out, it was like, well, why don't the phones have this? This feels great. I like this. I think in now that we have it, it's weird because I think it's amazing with the mini, right? It really makes the mini feel great. I think the iPhone 12 and 12 Pro, it's okay with. Although I feel like the difference between aluminum and stainless steel in hand makes I, – I just prefer – if I just close my eyes and pick up these two phones that are the same size, the 12 Pro and the 12, the the aluminum 12 just feels so much nicer to me. It, it, I mean you could – you know, it's not shiny, so maybe you don't like the way it looks as much, but it just has a nicer feel. It's like the – the flat sides and the flat buttons just feel sharp on the stainless steel in a way that's not pleasant to me. But then with the 12 Pro Max, it's like the flat sides, they just make it yes. feel huge. Gaudy. I, I I don't know why. I feel like that's it's the oddest thing. And my wife still my wife had the 11 Pro Max from last year, and it's not that much bigger of a device, and it is kind of taller in the way that it is bigger. But like it somehow feels so much yeah. bigger because of the flat sides. I don't get well, it. Well, it, it's like it's a rounded corners make things nicer to hold. I so I disagree with you on the the twelve pro. I, I have the blue one, Pacific blue is what I call it this year. Um, right. I think that is like one of the most beautiful products Apple has ever made. The stainless steel Pacific blue iPhone twelve pro. It is like I pulled it out of the box. And I slacked to the team, like, this thing is amazing. And then everyone was like, calm down. Like, I was like gushing over <laughs> it. And I, Dieter, I know Dieter disagrees with me. He thinks the matte aluminum regular 12 Pro is better. Great. Yeah. P- personal opinion. And the joke in my 12 Pro review were like, some of you are going to spend $200 because this is the shiny one. And like, I'm with you. <laughs> like, that's who I am too. The, the yeah. mini, right? It, it's dense. I think the flat sides make it feel dense and premium in a good way. And then I have a gold 12 Pro Max. So it's a white back with a gold sides. And yeah, that's, and I, that's my I, review. You know, I just so. think it looks, go- it's like too big. I keep, it's what I keep saying. But the flat sides just, they make it imposing. 
in a way that my 11 Pro Max, right? You know, it was it in many ways the 11 Pro Max basic shape is the same as the 8 Pro or the 6 Plus or whatever, right? Like here's a here's a round rec with rounded rounded sides, it's screen got bigger, and that shape worked. It's a little surfboardy, but it was nice to hold. And I, I think the 12 Pro Max is not nice to hold, like. I would never want to put the 12 Pro in a case. I think it's just beautiful. And I was sad when I put it into its case. And the Apple Clear case this year especially is like horrible. Um with that circle on the back, like what are they doing? <laughs> I don't I don't I don't get it. I really don't. I feel like I and I've I've shown it to other people and they're like, "Ah, no, it's all right. I don't care." And I'm like, "Well, what? no, wait. Why is there a weird, <laughs> there a weird circle, circle on the back?" I get it. <laughs> I I kind of feel like the backstory on that is that Apple had this team we should make a clear case, right? I, I, I think Apple's case business is a weird subsection of Apple because it seems to me anecdotally that most iPhone users, everybody knows famously, at least 95% of iPhone users use a case of some sort. It also seems to me, though, that of that 95% of people who use a case, 90% of them use a third-party case, whether it's because they're cheaper or whether it's just, you know, to each their own and it's a way to personalize it you know it, it's there's you meet a thousand people you might see a thousand different cases right it's it's very personal thing um but apple still is very committed to it and i think they sell enough of them and you know they're they're expensive they're like 50 bucks for the are, aren't the the rubber yeah. ones like 50 bucks and like the leather ones are i don't know what they are i think they're More 80 expensive but they're yeah, uh, we did a story. Like Ashley Carmen at the Verge did a story a long time ago on the woman who is in charge of case designs every year at the Verizon store. So it's like a huge business for Verizon. Hmm. It's their single easiest upsell with every hmm. phone. And so they they try to get exclusive cases. They think about case design trends. It's like they're running a, a fashion business next to their phone business. And there's obviously a person in charge of it. And that story, it was one of those stories where she went and got it. And came back, and I was like, "Oh, sh-. like I never even thought of that." I'll send you a link; we can put it in there. But it's a huge business; it's it's yep. free money, right? These cases cost cents to make, and then they sell them for for huge right. numbers. And I, they were like, "We're so proud of MagSafe for putting a, a circle on the back of the clear one." Like, I don't know. I, all what I was getting at is, I feel sad about putting the two smaller ones in a phone in a case. And the Pro Max yeah. has to be in a case just to make it easier to hold. And that is the sign that it's like veering on the edge of too big. It's already too big. Yeah. See, where I think that the, the case thing is like – and Apple does good work with leather and the silicon. To me, their silicon cases for 50 bucks don't last long enough. That Everybody I know who uses the Apple silicone ones, the, the, the corners rub away. But, you know, in general, Apple's good with materials. But famously, I've heard from people who like clear cases. Clear cases tend to yellow. You buy a third-party clear case, and you love it because that's what you want, a clear case. And then three months later, it's kind of yellow. And six months later, it looks like you had it in a casino soaking up nicotine smoke. Uh, and, And I think Apple looked at this and thought, well, people want clear cases. We're good with materials. We can make a clear case that won't turn yellow over time. And they have, by from what I've seen from daring fireball readers who like the Apple Clear case, it doesn't yellow. And they're like, so now we have this third type of case, right? We had the rubber ones, we had the leather ones, and now we have clear ones. 
and they I think they were very proud of themselves for this. I think maybe they maybe they sell well by Apple's case standards. And then there's this other team making <laughs> magnetic <laughs> charging system. And I feel like there must have been this meeting where it's like, hmm. Huh. Huh. <laughs> on the one hand, people are buying clear cases and we make a really good one. And on the other hand, if we can't really sell a clear case that's clear <laughs> and magnetic. And so they did this thing, and it's like it's almost like there's like a Green Lantern logo on it. I, I, I right? thought it was a it's power like, button. I, I can't tell you what it is. I don't know. It's it, it to me. It, I mean, it doesn't look bad, and they made it centered around the Apple logo, and it's you know strategically placed. And if you were going to put a circle and a little line coming out of it, it's as nice as it could be. But it's not clear. That's the thing, <laughs> right? So the little line, from what I understand, so MagSafe has the magnets in a circle, and then it has the magnet underneath the circle for positioning. So you click it on, and then I, yeah, that's the I one that aligns it perfectly. So that's why you need the line. But right. man, I, I don't know. Have you been using your MagSafe charger at all? Yeah, I have it on my bedside. I have I have mixed feelings about it. The longer I go, like there are places where I know I want one, and. I, on my bedside probably isn't it and it's funny because i i am the person who has misplaced their phone misaligned it on a regular chi charger and then woken up in the morning and it doesn't have a charge or it's you know down to 20% because it wasn't getting a charge overnight and magsafe does charge say, say, change that but it's like the fact that you can't just yeah. lift it off is like it's driving me nuts it's 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 like I've traded one problem for an entirely different one, and I don't I don't know which problem. So I, I do not have any idea why that cord is so short. Um, because the problem it seems like it's solving. This is very on brand for me. The problem that it seems like it's solving is Apple doesn't want any ports on its phone. So how do we make it charge fast when right. there's no Lightning port? Okay, well, what's a thing that a lot of people do every single day? They get into bed, they plug in their phone. And they use their phone in bed because their battery – it's the end of the day and the battery is almost dead. But they want to charge it. But they want to keep it. So, right. okay, we made a thing that makes – that solves that problem. Now we're going to give it a four-inch cord. Like, what? <laughs> you didn't – you actually haven't solved anyone's problems in any situation. I'm on an airplane. I plug that thing in the back of the seat rest. Like, it won't even hit the tray table. So – Right, or if you're if you're on like Amtrak, you know, like one of the nice things about train travel is that every seat has power. But if you have the aisle seat, you're yeah. you're not close to it; it's over by the window. And now it's like <laughs> my it's phone like, doesn't. Why work. I have no idea why this cord is so short. And then, like you said, there's a million places where I I want this thing to exist. I desperately want a MagSafe car charger, right? Like I yeah, have a wireless definitely. charging. Right. I'm a sucker for them. I buy everyone on Instagram that I see. It's a real problem. The algorithm knows me. Okay, I can see it. I can I can envision it. How great it will be to get in my car and like clip the thing in and walk away. It doesn't exist, and that it's just such a huge miss to me that Apple invented this this accessory ecosystem where their own accessories seem a little confused about what they're for, and then third parties are not ready for this holiday season with the most obvious accessories. And I just, right. I kind of don't, there's already, yeah. there's knockoff mounts on Amazon and I'm like, how bad could it be? It's just a magnet, but I'm not, I'm not quite ready to take that leap, but I'm just like, I think Apple's like connector ecosystem ideas have not, have never really taken off the way that any, any rational person would have expected them to. 
So there, like to this day, there isn't some enormous ecosystem of lightning accessories. USB-C, I think we could do another whole two-hour episode on what on earth has happened with USB-C. The smart connector on the iPad. Um, there are virtually no keyboards that use the smart connector for the iPad, which is just boggles the mind because Apple will tell you that's an open connector. And I think MagSafe is, it could be great, but history suggests it's going to be a little confused, at least while people figure out what it's for. And that the, the length of that cord, is, yeah. that's the one that like, Yep, that's the sign that it's a little confused. Right, and it's like I I know why sometimes you want a shorter cord because if you're you know you if you're going to use it in a scenario where you know it's within three feet of the outlet, then you know that a one meter cord will reduce the need for cord clutter. Right, you don't have to cinch it up or something or have have it you know making weird loop de loops that you don't need. But if it's the one and only size, it's way too short. <laughs> and I don't know. Maybe it's because I'm not going anywhere. But it just seems to me like bedside is a primary. And then, and then it's not heavy enough. Case. Yeah. Well. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, if it were heavier, then maybe you could lift it off. And it's like I've gotten good. I've tried to explain to my wife because I got her one for her phone too. And it's like she she's very annoyed by the fact that you can't just lift it off. And I'm like, you kind of do it like an Oreo, you know, like it's in the and, realm and, of doomed things that you have to say to your partner about technology. You've bought them how right. to hold it. And then saying like an Oreo is yeah. like, it's right. It's right below. I changed how the remote for the TV works. Well, I'm, I'm good at getting it on now to be on. I, I, I would be doing a disservice to the, Newman's own company, if I don't mention my beloved Numinos, which are a superior <laughs> Oreo style cookie. But I, I do, I enjoy, I enjoy a Numino very much. And, uh, but I also do enjoy prying the top off uh, and eating it in two pieces. And I can do it with one hand. And it, and the way to do it is not by just prying it apart. You, you do like a yeah. little push, you know, you sl- push them apart. Um, I thought I had, and it's like, this is, and I think I'm saying to my wife, like, here's your advantage. You, you know, you get to live with John Gruber and you get daring fireball style content personalized for you. And instead she's like, why did you buy me? I don't want to open an Oreo. I just want to pick my phone off the table. And I'm like, oh, well, that's a good point. Yeah. It's uh, the, the curse of the reviewer is to get brutally yanked into reality. Every time you, you're like, do you like this? And, my wife is always like, I'm not using an app. Right. Like that's her answer to everything. One right. of the reasons that we, um, you know, we, in the pandemic, I, I just keep buying smart home crap. It's not useful or good. Yes. So like, yes. all right. And then there's another light switch we can turn on with her voice. That makes sense. And I've realized yeah. that all of it has to be in home kit or like she, Becky just won't use it. Like if it's not in control yeah. center, one swipe away, it, it might as well not. I'm like, try, download this app. And she's like, no. And that's the end of that conversation. <laughs> so the the one and only smart home thing that I've ever done that's really been a hit in this house with that people other than me is getting the Christmas oh, yeah. tree lights onto a, a smart switch. And that's a game changer because the, the old way of getting Christmas tree lights is somebody's got to get behind the tree. Or you had one of those big round mechanical timers. That's what my dad always had. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's it's never been good. And now being able to tell one of your smart assistants to do it and have it work. It oh, did take, and I, 
it took about three years for that to really lock into where it worked all the time, which I think is like a very funny state of the tech industry story that it took three years of iterative work from three of the smartest, most advanced companies in the world for turn on the lights to right. always work. Because the first year I set it up, like I distinctly remember being told, why would I do it when it doesn't work? And like being laughed at because I was screaming, turn on the lights over and over again. Um, this year, this year, I think they've all, I've only tried it with Google and Siri, but it, it works every time this time. Um, it, <laughs> well, it's it, to me, it's one of the, the great causes for this, the second half of my career is, is non-deterministic errors in computing. Right. It used to be that if something went wrong and we would complain endlessly that, oh, look at this terrible error message. It, g- it gave me a negative 1438 error. Well, that's useless. And, and the complaint was, you know, error messages should be humanized. And instead of just reporting an error code, you should know what the error code is and put it in the human readable form, blah, blah, blah. Well, who knew that that was the good old days because you at <laughs> least had something to search for, right? That you could search for 14. 14- 38 and then maybe you'd find an answer uh now when stuff you you think it's going to work and you say to your device to to blah 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 and it used to work uh you know we have a thing we have shades we have smart shades and and i love them because we have a lot of windows and and so we move the shades up and down a lot more than we would if we had to do it physically um but i had a home, home thing in the home app uh open main floor shades and if you and at the end of the day, you could say close main floor shades, and it closes and opens all the sh- all the shades on our main floor of our house, and I love it. And then all of a sudden, uh, I thought it was because I had the HomePod Mini at some point in the, uh, iOS thirteen or four. What are we at fourteen? Uh, at some point about six weeks ago, it stopped working, and it was like my setting. Uh, it was just, but but it didn't say to me why it wouldn't work. And I changed the name of it from open main floor shades to just open main shades. And then it worked again. Yeah. (laughs) I had to take out the word floor. And so I guess what was happening was that even though I had a setting named open main floor shades, it was before interpreted it as a saved setting name, it was trying to be smart about it and figure out, oh, he wants all the shades on the main floor to be open and it's like, no, no, you don't have to be smart. I already made a thing with this name. Just do it. But it, it, I, but it wouldn't tell me why yeah. it stopped working. That was the thing that drove me nuts. It, it, the fact that it stopped working was bad enough. But it was the fact that it wasn't like, uh, this, this isn't working because you have a conflict with a named thing. That would have told me everything. I had to like backwards engineer it. It's like, and then, and then I tried renaming it last week back to where well, it was. And now my favorite now. general home kit troubleshooting. And I, this is exactly what we're talking about is oftentimes the answer to a home kit automation going sideways. The best answer is to restart your Apple TV. <laughs> right. And it's true. like, none of that makes sense unless you are aware of the fact right. that the, the automations are running in a local process on your Apple TV, which is your, your hub and is controlling this entire system, right. but it's completely invisible to you. And it never tells you that this is the problem. It's just suddenly when you open the garage door, the light doesn't come on anymore. And the answer, bizarrely, is to go restart your TV. And it's like all of that should be a lot more direct or at least communicated to you that, 
hey, this thing under your TV is a computer. It's actually the server. It's right. the master server control server for your home. And, and right, right now, now it's, it's confused. confused. And I, can you please stop watching Netflix <laughs> right. so the garage door works again? Like, yeah. you know, there's the, I think that's a much better, you know, the, the three-year process to turn on the Christmas lights working better is all, every company and every device maker realizing that sending a light switch command to a cloud to talk to another cloud, that, like yeah. everyone knows that's bad. So all of it has moved local. <laughs> all, all three of the major home platforms are now way more local in that way. But that means that there are now computers right. in your house that are like – they're computers. They're brittle. Like they're brittle in exactly the ways you would expect. And sometimes you just have to restart the Apple TV to make the lights work again. And it's like, well, some problems are eternal. You know, like this computer got confused right. and we're just going to unplug it and plug it back in. It's one of those things where I just love sometimes is, – is endlessly fascinating to me to, to think about what would I love to tell myself 25 years ago if I had, you know – and you know, an hour to just explain 2020s <laughs> technology to my night, or or. But if you imagine going back to somebody in the mid 90s and explaining to them that if you explained that you could have a very powerful Unix computer running in your pocket at all times with a touchscreen interface, you'd be like, "Oh my god, that's amazing! I can't wait. That'd be that sounds great, right? That sounds like that's where the future should be." If you explain to them that you'll be issuing commands over a network in your home and they're going to leave your home. And go to a data center somewhere, and you don't know yeah. where, but it's probably, you know, it could be across the continent. And then that's where the command will be parsed and will be to uh, do some computing. And then they'll send a signal back to your home, and then it'll do the thing that you said to do, which is directing a command at like a light bulb that is yeah. three feet away from you. And you'd say, <laughs> no, you're making that up. Yeah. There, you'd be like, that makes no sense. Why wouldn't you just send the command right to the light bulb? That uh, you, you, twenty-five years ago, you'd say that that makes no sense at all. Yeah, and somewhere in that, and you say no, that's that. But like, and somewhere in that chain, any one of these companies <laughs> might send you a recording your voice to a person and make sure they got it right. Right, like, <laughs> okay, I, that's that's like now I'm just like turning the knob to see when you're going to stop believing me that I'm telling you the truth. Mm. All right, let me take a break here. Thank our third and final sponsor, our good friends at Squarespace. Look, I'll make this short. You guys, I talk about Squarespace all the time. They keep coming. They keep coming back. They sponsor the show. They're one of the longest-running sponsors of this show. Here's the, here's the story. It's simple. If you need a new website or if someone you know needs a new website, whether it's for a new project or to take an old website that is way out of date and doesn't have any of the features that you want – and update it to something new with all the features you want, like a great new design or an integrated blog or a way to host a podcast right there on the site or a way to host a store and sell stuff right there with everything you need, like taking credit cards and processing and stuff like that. Uh, go to Squarespace. Go to squarespace.com and get started. You get a 30-day free trial. You can build it. It's all real. During the free trial, it's not like it's got like a Squarespace watermark on it or something like that. It looks totally real. You can be up and running very soon. I mean, just like an hour or two, you could have something totally credible, very real, ready to go, start using it. Uh, and then when the free trial's over, uh, you just sign up and you remember to go to squarespace.com slash talk show, squarespace.com slash talk show. And when you sign up, use that same code talk show. And you get 10% off your first purchase. So whether it's you or someone you know who's come to you for help, send them to Squarespace. 
it's the best way to get a new website up and running. All right, let's do recommendations. What? How? This is what people want to know from me, and I feel like I haven't given them an answer yet. And I, I'm, this this podcast is where I'm going to. What 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 iPhone would you buy right now if you had to buy an iPhone 12 to use for the next year? You, I, would buy, you, I would buy the Pro Max, and yeah. solely my hesitation about the size aside, solely because I do have a toddler, and we take a million photos of her. Right, and it's you know it, I don't want to get too caught up in the current next let's say three four months of pandemic winter you know it's very very good chance that some point in 2021 we're gonna go places again yeah and and take pictures i think for me i'm not saying i would recommend it to others but for me personally i am on the cusp of buying myself an iphone 12 yeah no adjectives and just say goodbye to the third camera lens i'm okay (laughs) with it um well, you're like, you're yeah. like a real camera person, right? You have like a, like a I Rico? Am. Well, I, I used to. I, my, I haven't bought it. That's the thing. And that's part of my thinking is, part of my thinking is, you know what? I should stop pretending that my iPhone is my only camera. Um, and I'm, I, this is my, this is what I'm thinking is that at some point, but I'm going to wait because why not wait? I'm not going anywhere. But as soon as it seems like I'm on the cusp of quarantine is over, we can start traveling again. I'm getting myself. You know, a nice new camera, a camera camera, because I should. I haven't bought one in a couple of years. I think the last one I bought was my Fuji X100S, and the X100S is, I don't know, five, six years old. I haven't bought a camera in like five years. So I feel like I'm in for a nice surprise having waited so long between buying camera cameras. And it. I'm just going to stop pretending that the, the tele, quote-unquote telephoto lens on an iPhone is actually all that good of a camera. Yeah. It, by the way, on the Pro Max, it is like especially not that good of a camera. Um, yeah, that's and that was that is. I'm glad you brought that up because that was one of the head scratchers to me. It's like okay, now it's a 2.5x instead of 2.0, and that sounds better because you're getting more reach, right? Um, but it's also a little slower, and yeah. it's like, isn't that going to be noisier? And then I, your photos in particular, I think that was the one where you took a picture of a pickup truck. Yeah. And it was like, yeah, it's noisy. Yeah. It's, and that's just like me standing on my upstairs deck, shooting down in the driveway. Like if you were doing what people want to do with telephotos, which I'm always told is why the telephotos sell well, you're shooting your kids play. That seems yeah. to be the thing. Like you're going to be so disappointed by having a slower lens. And right. then, same math as you're talking about, longer exposure times. So definitely in a kid's play, people are moving around. So it right. just it just seems like the weirdest trade-off to me. Um I don't I, I would say I think portrait mode is better on these phones, but I always use the one X lens. All, all yeah. this little stuff where it's yeah, the camera's better, but you know what? Like I have a Sony RX one hundred. It's great. Every photo yeah. I ever take with that camera and like do the slightest amount of work in Lightroom and put it in Instagram, yeah. people ask me what camera I use. Yeah. And it's like, oh, it's this very accessible camera for anyone. Not to mention the collection of now ancient Nikon DSLRs that float around this house. Like when I actually use one of those, people like people love those. My parents love those photos. Not that I think anyone should carry around a gigantic Nikon DSLR all the time, but it's mm-hmm. great. But I'm saying the 12 Pro Max because we're always in a situation where we want to take a photo quickly, and I value those photos being really good because they we're going to look at them forever. But just walking around, like I actually get, I get more value out of. I took a photo with a camera, I came back and made it look the way I want. Yeah, 
I that's so I'm I'm just not worried about that missing third lens. I will miss it. I'm not saying I haven't used it. And I did the thing where you can go into the photos app on the Mac and say set up a smart album with any meets any of these criteria and uh, the lens matches, you know, six millimeters is I think the size of the actual size of the the telephoto lens on the iPhone 11 and 11 Pro, etc. And yeah, I've taken a bunch of photos that that I use that lens, and it's like, yeah, I guess if I shot it with the regular 1x lens and just cropped, it wouldn't be quite as nice. But I, there were like n- almost none of those photos where I was like, oh, it would break my heart if I couldn't have gotten yes. this. Whereas the ultra wide is like the least good camera, and I'm always like, right. these are the funnest pictures I've taken. And it, it's you can't fake it, right? Yeah. So if you take a one X lens and just crop to the center, and you you go from like a six megapixel image to a or a twelve megapixel image to a six millimeter or megapixel crop of the center, and zoom it up, it it'll look fine on the phone. It's not going to look big, good on a big screen. It's not going to look good if you you know print it real big but you know like you said nobody's nobody apparently nobody zooms in anymore uh, <laughs> but there's no way to fake that extra that that 0.5x ultra wide form factor it really isn't and back in the days when we would be able to go places indoors and see people it's like it's amazing it's kind of fun how you can get like oh you can get the whole table in the shot yeah yeah and there's also no one is buying those lenses for their their real cameras, right? Like right. those are they look weird. Apple's done some stuff this year to correct the distortion, which is I think great. But no one's walking around with a fish eye lens all the time, right. and like that's kind of what you're getting. And I it, I think there's a reason Apple went with the ultra wide on the on all of the phones because right. it's the one where I think people use it the most uh, compared to the telly. It is just the worst camera on the phone, just like on a technical level. But I, yeah, I think the value of what you can make with it far outweighs the, whether or not it's a little grainy or whatever. Yeah. Do you have, so, so you use portrait mode on the phone? Uh, so I, I, I have do. long been anti portrait mode. And with this phone in particular, I've started using it more. Hmm. I, I'm a little anti, it's like, I, I, I feel like I feel the way about portrait mode on iPhones, the way I feel about the touch bar, where it's like, I'm known for, you know, I, I it's like my career is having very strong opinions <laughs> about these things. And yet somehow I'm kind of ambivalent about the touch bar. I really am. And now and I've been using it, I've been really, really like poking at it the last couple of weeks using this M1 MacBook Pro. And I'm like, eh. I still feel meh. It's like, eh, oh, I, I don't I, hate I've it. I've come to actively dislike it. I know. I know. I read your review, and yeah. I know you did, and I can see why some people do. Uh, I really feel like, <laughs> for me personally, they solved all of my dislike of it by just moving it away from the delete key a little bit and adding a physical escape key. And it's like, yeah, all right. Now it's like I don't hate it. I, I wish it had haptics. I wish that – I feel like they could – I feel like for something that they know people really, some people really hate, they haven't really changed it at all. Like the only way they've really changed it since we first saw it was to make it shorter on the escape key <laughs> side to add an escape key. Yeah. It's like a, to make it do less. 
Yeah. So they just said, okay, it's no good at being a fake escape key. So we'll give you, the, we'll put the escape. All right. You got us. The escape key should be a real key. And then otherwise, what is the difference between the touch bar right now on the M brand new rave review M1 MacBooks than the one we first saw? Nothing. And it's like, you know, why not have haptics or something so you can reach up and feel the volume key or something? Yeah. I don't know. There's, but I don't have strong opinions on it. Portrait mode, same way. I, I've taken some and I've gotten some shots where I'm like, ah, especially when you're without pinching to zoom and you just look at it on the phone. It's like, yeah, that looks like a credible sort of portrait style bokeh background photography. But I, I don't love it. And then every once in a while you get one with a real boner and, yeah. you know, like, oh, geez, look at it did to this person's glasses. Ah, oh, it's just, it's like wrecked. Uh, and then I'm like, ah, I'm not using that anymore. But I don't hate it, I, you know. I, the way I feel about it is the way I felt, and and I, 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 the way I felt about digital photography, period, in like the late '90s, maybe around the year 2000. It's like, oh, I see. This is going to this is going to be the future. I'll I'll just keep shooting film for now. Yeah, you know. I mean, so what I do is I, I would just and thinking about it, I always take them both. I'll yeah. shoot the the photo, the regular photo, the regular way, just to make sure I have it, and then I switch to portrait mode and like. Screw with it a little more. And I think on this phone, it's this is where every year I'm like the processor and the phone doesn't matter. It's so fast. Like all you're really buying is three years of headroom. But I think in yeah. some cases, portrait mode being one of them, the A14 makes it faster and makes it funner to use because it's faster. Um, and so like I'm using it more. I'm not saying that I'm in love with the photos, but definitely I'm at the point where it's worth messing around with because it it doesn't carry that you know, with the iPhone seven, when it first came out, you would like yeah. push it. It would take a while to think, and you're, you're already on to wanting to take the next photo. And then you'd get like this weird cutout. Like all of that has been ripped away. Like they fixed it. And now you're at a place where, yeah, I'll try to take a couple, just see what happens. And I, that's, I think that's a big, that's an inflection point for these. And then sometimes it does a great job. Not all the time, but sometimes it does like a terrific job. And I think that's really impressive. Yeah, I, that's, that's pretty much how I feel about it. But Can I don't, I complain I don't about like the touch bar. Can we go back to complaining? Because I'm I'm all queued up. Yo, I'm all, all right. I'm all, all right. raring to go. So here's my theory: No one at Apple is left-handed. Slash has big hands. <laughs> Every time you open a web browser with the touch bar, it puts the back button at the top left. And if you're left-handed like I am, you're pinky, and you're like, and you're weird. You know, like I didn't learn how to touch type. I just figured it out. So like, my hands are just all over the keyboard. I hit the back button in every web browser by accident on every touch bar Mac 500 times a day. I've had to install better touch tool. I've like disabled the whole thing because it's not a button. So on a regular keyboard, I just put my hands in there and like I do things on purpose with the touch bar. I'm always just accidentally touching things, which is the opposite of what you want. And I, I can't extrapolate that experience to everyone but I can certainly say, oh, this thing personally frustrates me all the time, such that I dinged you another 0.5 in this review. Because you won't explain to me what the value of it is supposed to be. I I just feel it's just uh, – I, I don't know. I don't – I guess my – the reason I don't have the hatred some people have is I just never touch it accidentally. Because you're right-handed. Well, maybe. Because they, they put all the stuff that you, you can touch by accident in the right. But they're still crazy to me. It, I, I'm more frustrated. Like some people, like you, obviously have outright hate for it. 
Ben Thompson, same way. Ben Thompson will go out of his way to, to get <laughs> like you, it, it. It could do you know. There is no doubt that he's going to get the MacBook Air because he wants it to. He'd pay more to get the buttons than to get the Touch Bar, yeah. right? Uh, I know other people feel that way. I don't, but I still. I it's like I hardly ever use it, you know. And it's like some you don't of the change stuff they, the volume on your Mac. Yeah, well, I do. I do change the volume, and I like changing the volume where you can just press it and then slide your finger. But a, a lot of the application specific stuff I don't use. Like yeah. I noticed uh, the other day, it was actually when I was doing the thing I, I told you where I set up a smart album to say, let me just look at all the photos I took with the telephoto lens on my previous iPhones before I actually commit to using the the phone without it for a year. And I noticed that photos puts the thumbnails in in the touch bar but they're so tight like what what <laughs> and it's like a cool demo it's like you can put your finger on them and slide it across and it's like you're going through thumbnails but it was like well when would i ever use this you know what i mean like there's just so many apps where if you start i start looking at it i'm like well what does this app put in the touch bar and it's like oh well, well, that's interesting. I'll never use it. You know, it's like my touch bar could stop working except for brightness and volume, and I, I would never notice. Yeah, I know we 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 got to portrait mode, but once you get me going on the touch bar, I can't stop. It's really, I'm like dying to know, like, do people who are because if you're left-handed, you you often have your dominant hand like slightly higher than the other one, and I'm I push back in a web browser using the touch bar Mac so many times a day. And I don't I, even know where is the back button. Is it over there next to escape? Yeah. It's the default oh. place for both Safari and Chrome. And it is the single most irritating thing that can happen to you when you're using a computer is to be looking at something and have it just go away. Well, can't, you, like, can't you turn it off? Can't you just yeah, go? Yeah, so I've had to effectively disable the whole thing. Yeah. Because There's, if you have it on at a system level, every app will show you those things, and you can't turn it off per app. Yeah. Well, I, hopefully it's one of those things – I guess it, you know, corresponds to the, uh, it's, it, it, as, as a thing that hasn't really physically changed in a long time, it's up there with the webcam where, well, okay, they can get people to upgrade just if they say, here, now the, M- <laughs> the M2 yeah. MacBooks have a better webcam and uh, somehow we've done something better with the touch bar. Cause I don't think they're going away with it. You know, like I don't think they're going to go back and just give everybody buttons, but I feel like they need, it, it just needs to be taken to the next level. I don't know, haptics or something, right? Um, Dieter's theory is that you know to get a better webcam, you probably need a thicker screen lid. Once you get mm. a thicker screen lid, you could stick a touch controller in there. I'm just, it all comes back to the most obvious thing you can do to a Mac to make it feel like the next generation of itself. Yeah, well, I do think that the you know, uh, I mean, it's is I, I, a touch controller has to increase the thickness to some degree. Uh, yeah, but if you you're going to make that, you might. You know, if you're going to do it for the the, right. the webcam, you might right. as well get something else out of that space. Right. Well, and the other way to do it with the webcam would be to make a camera bump, which is like, <laughs> hey, well, you laugh, <laughs> you, you laugh, but if it's it's like they they slow boiled us. We're we're all slow boiling frogs with the camera bumps on our phones because I mean. Yeah. And you guys had like I think the best coverage of it when they first came out with the camera bump on the iPhone six, and they had like some marketing shots from the side that didn't show a camera bump. I, yeah. I remember the Verge specifically was, it was like, flat. "Whoa, whoa, yeah. 
they're showing this from the one side. And if you look at an iPhone 6 from that side, it has a, you could see the camera bump. And it's like, can you believe we, we, we wrote all that about the camera bump on the iPhone 6, which is like, I don't know, it's like a hangnail. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, you laugh at the idea of a camera bump on the back of a MacBook, but you know, I don't know. We're not laughing about our phone bumps anymore. I don't yeah, know. but the, the bump on a, I've thought about this way more than I should. The bump on a phone camera is the camera, right? It's it's facing the right direction. Whereas right. on a MacBook, they would never put it on the inside. No, it would have to be on the back. So you would just have a like a thing on the back, which would be <laughs> crazy. <laughs> just like a big swollen. Yeah. I mean, look, like, there's a camera bump on the back of the iPad. It works yeah. just fine in laptop mode, but it's facing out. Be like a like a little I, cam like a camera beer belly. <laughs> Uh, that's what they should call it. Jaws, yeah. if you're listening. Um, well, I mean, that's to me the, the what this is true in the iPhone too. Apple's selfie cameras, the ones that face you, are by far their worst. Also, right. by far the most used. Yeah. And I, that's it. If there's a place across the entire lineup where you could say you could definitely, well, maybe I don't know if they're the most used on an iPad. Um, but certainly in the age of Zoom, that you're using that camera on a MacBook all the time. And then, I mean, what is all of TikTok? Right, it's just front-facing right. camera videos, and it's bizarre that it's the place where there seems to be the, the least amount of investment. Whereas on the back, they're like, "This year we've added four new lenses. They have five different minute spec variations, and you're going to take this many pictures of a sunset to find them." And in the front, it's like it's the same one from two years ago. I I, I salute. I, I've never seen one that I wanted to buy, but I salute all those Android handset makers making oddball high-end Android phones where they have some kind of thing, like maybe like a, a camera that flips around yeah. so that the back-facing camera can also be the self-facing camera. Because philosophically, it seems crazy that you've got a vastly, vastly better camera pointing back. And yet a lot of times you want to take a picture forward and there's no good solution, right? It's like... You have the camera right there. You want to use it. Like you said, there's people just shooting tons and tons of it on social media. Um, and yet there's no good answer for it. I don't know. I, I thought that flip phones. I mean, it's like they'll make the flip phone and then you'll just right. have the one camera. Like I think Asus <laughs> makes the one where the camera actually swivels on a motor. Right. There's one where there's a periscope that comes up. That right. stuff is fun. All of it seems doomed to break. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly what I think. I'm like, I'll feel like, I feel like everything that moves is doomed to break. And the last thing you want in there, you know, if it's just a volume button, it's like, okay, you just click it. But if it's like a whole camera system, forget it. Yes. How many, like how many cameras like of these Sony RX 100s, I've just like knocked the lens out of alignment. I'm like, well, there goes another one. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's just like, you can't do that with your phone. Yeah. Well, anyway, I feel like that's a wrap. Uh, I appreciate it. It's always good to talk to you after review season uh it was good that we didn't have the the usual exhausted i can't believe we got through that again we had a little space this time yeah i know i just well we'll see next year maybe we'll be back to normal hopefully yeah uh hey we have a new podcast to promote you you have a new podcast uh, not me you De decoder right decoder yeah so uh as you as listeners may know kara swisher hosted recode decode for a long time she uh, still host Pivot for our company, but she's onto the time. She's got a new show. I we put it. We've relaunched Recode Decode as Decoder with me on the feed. So if you're subscribed to Recode Decode, you're already subscribed. If not, go subscribe to Decoder. 
interview show. We're aiming for CEOs um, and other people who make decisions at companies. I'm really interested in everything is a trade-off. Uh, you know, basically what you and I have talked about for two hours now is trade-offs, right? And right. how we make products, how we sell them, what we what we use them for. Um, I'm, I really want to get into that, people. So first episode was Mark Cuban. Extremely fun. I just let him talk about whatever he wanted to talk about. Uh, Sal Khan from Khan Academy. Um, trade-offs are just online learning. Um, Xbox, Phil Spencer, I mentioned that. And then yeah. next week, uh, Shelly, this is coming out tonight. Yeah. So by the time this comes out, uh, Shelly Taylor, who's the CEO of Alamo Draft House Theaters, um, ah. going to talk to me about how, how we're reopening theaters in the time of COVID. So we're trying to trying really hard to keep up the spirit of Recode Decode while expanding into sort of the larger, what does it mean to run a company and be a leader in this moment? Well, the trade-offs, is, uh, that, the trade-offs are everything. There's nothing else to talk about. You, I, I feel like we could. Our job is uh, always to explore and complain and uh, talk about trade-offs. Yeah, it's and not I, a bad I, way I, to frame it. Yeah, and I, I, once you you can listen to anybody interview anybody at this moment in podcasting history. So I want to make sure it, this one has a little bit of a focus, uh, a focus in asking people who make decisions exactly how they do it. So mm-hmm. hopefully, people like it. You can subscribe to it. Decoder. Excellent. Uh, well, thanks for being here, Neil. Talk to you soon. Always great to talk to you, John.